Well, in the middle of this um, really joyful worship service, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Uh, But if you didn't notice already, the 2016 presidential election has started already. We have uh, one candidate that I'm aware of to date. Ted Cruz announced his candidacy a few weeks ago at a speech at Liberty University. And it just so happens that uh, one of our own, Eli McGowan, attends Liberty University and was there for the speech. In fact, all the students at Liberty were there because all the students were required to go to the speech. And uh, Eli, this is why I love Eli, by the way. Um, Many of you know him uh, or were at his wedding earlier this summer. And uh, Eli and Emily felt that uh, their presence at this speech could be construed as an endorsement of Ted Cruz's candidacy, which they were not comfortable with. And so they had printed up T-shirts of an opposing candidate. And in the stands, right behind Ted Cruz, as he's announcing his candidacy for President of the United States, is a massive section of red T-shirts boldly declaring a different candidate. Do it, Eli. Um, That politics are awesome and terrible all at the same time because there is this massive tension between what we all want and what we know is real. That we want, in a sense, we need a leader who can um, have the wisdom and the power to straighten us out economically. To provide jobs for our people. To, um, to provide for our security. To heal us morally as a nation. A leader that will um, have the power and authority and wherewithal and wisdom to restore us as a nation. And yet most of us know in our hearts that that is not going to happen. So much so that it's quite annoying, actually, to have candidates tell you that that it is going to happen. It's kind of a thing we all know, campaign promises, it's a campaign promise. So we kind of live in that awkward tension between what we know we need and what reality is. Um... So this is my first Easter Sunday sermon. So I'm a little bit nervous about this. You know, there's like sermons, but then there's like Easter Sunday sermons. And um, so I wasn't quite sure what clever thing I would have to say. And I finally decided, rather than trying to come up with something clever to say, I want us to spend some time looking at what the first Christians had to say. When the resurrection happened, what did they say about it? What was their proclamation? What was the message, the preaching the confession of the very first Christians, even of the disciples. And their message is that that leader that we all want is real, and he has been coronated as king in his resurrection and has begun his reign. That the fairy tale has become real. Sorry, buddy. I'll hang out with you later. We take a look at these uh, passages. There's a lot of cool things to talk about um, that we won't. Uh, but to name a few, Jesus says, peace be with you a lot. And the disciples are glad a lot. 
which tells you something about the emotion of the day. Also, Jesus apparently really likes to show up on Sunday. Because even though they were in the habit of worshiping on Saturday, the last day of the week, Jesus keeps appearing to the disciples over and over again on the first day of the week, which is why, by the way, we worship on Sunday. Uh, That in the Old Testament, you worked and worship happened after you worked, that you looked forward to your rest. And now Jesus begins rest on the first day. And we bother working after that, but we're going to rest today. But what I really want to take a look at is what these disciples had to say about the resurrection. In the John passage, if you look at uh, verse 27, Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. That is the first confession. That's the first sermon of the Christian church that uh, for very unfortunate reasons we've come to call Thomas Doubting Thomas. No, Thomas was just the Thomas that really wanted to make sure this was the real deal. And I'm so thankful for him because one of us was actually able to ask the question that we all need to know. Were the nail holes really there? And he was able to verify that for us, to be our witness, and is immediately upon verifying that to be true, that the resurrection is a reality, his sermon is, my Lord and my God. And up till this point in John, a number of people have addressed Jesus as Lord. It's, uh, to get all fancy, it's the vocative form of the word. It's kind of a, a polite address, like, uh, Lord, dear sir, excuse me, sir. But for the first time in John, this Lord is a different Lord. It's, it's a title. In Greek, kurios, that Thomas pronounces Jesus to be Lord, to be kurios. Immediately afterwards, John, uh, the apostle who's writing the book of John, says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written... And there's a reason why this follows immediately after Thomas's confession, that Thomas's confession, in a sense, is the conclusion of the book. And now John's telling you why he wrote the whole book, culminating in Thomas's confession. All of this stuff has been written so that you may believe that, here's sermon number two, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So in John, we have Thomas declaring Jesus to be Lord, kurios, and John declaring Jesus to be Christ, Christos. And it's amazing the unity that the church immediately had on this because Peter, after Jesus' ascension, preaches his first sermon and concludes it this way. Verse 36 of the Acts passage. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's Peter's first declaration, that Jesus is kurios and Christos, Lord and Christ. From this moment on, um, Jesus is Lord, is all over the New Testament, and Jesus 
is the Christ is so common that they, they eventually just shorten it and just call it Jesus Christ, which is short for Jesus is the Christ. So let's take a few minutes looking at what these two words mean, Christ and Lord, and to find out why it is that um, Jesus is the leader that we have only dared to hope for. We take a look at Christ first. Um, Christ, Christos, is a is the Greek word for smeared. Uh, so, to a Greek person hearing this declaration, they would hear Jesus is the smeared one, uh, which required a little bit of translation because when they said that, they weren't really speaking to the Greek world. Um, that Christos is a Greek translation of a Hebrew word, Mashiach which means smeared or anointed, anointed with oil. So in the Old Testament, the important leaders were all anointed with oil. You anointed a king with oil. You anointed the priest. That's a, to be Mashiach was you're in some form of leadership position. And then late in the history, as the history of Israel sort of begins, the wheels kind of come off the cart, and they head into exile, the prophets begin talking about a particular anointed one. One of these, these type of people that's anointed is coming. They um, begin describing him as a, a person, this person as a new king in the line of David. So remember the covenant with David is God's promise to Israel that he will uh, lead his people through a ruler like David, who loves the Lord their God with all his mind and strength and his neighbor and himself, and he will lead the people in righteousness. And so this anointed one will be one of David's descendants, but more importantly, he will be the man of the Davidic covenant that finally makes that really real, because David was, was that kind of, but not really. So we hear these different things in the Old Testament about this coming anointed one, this Messiah, or Christ in Greek. Um, he reestablishes the throne of David in Hosea 3. He is uniquely endowed with the spirit of the Lord, that the Lord is with him in his heart and in his strength like no one before, that he is righteous, that he does everything rightly and well, that with this ability and this power that he will shepherd the house of Israel, God's people, that he will lead them just as the Davidic kings were supposed to do. And we find out in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 that as the leader of God's people, he will crush all the other kingdoms of the earth. Remember this image, this dream that Daniel has of the statue with all these different parts and feet and legs, and and they're all the different kingdoms of the world. And finally, the anointed one comes and destroys them all and vindicates the people of Israel, God's own people, So Messiah, Christ, it's a title. It's a title for whoever it is that will finally fulfill that role. I said earlier, Jesus Christ is really short for Jesus the Christ. Jesus is the one, he's the anointed one that the prophets talked about to come and to do all of those things. John in his gospel proclaims Jesus as Messiah, as Christ, and adds to the Christ concept, the idea that the one who came with this 
grandiose power and righteousness and beauty, did so because he was himself God. So John's message is that Jesus is, is the, the, the Christ, the anointed one, and God, that he accomplishes all those things by being himself God. Most of us here probably believe that already, that Jesus was actually God. But take that in for just a second. That Jesus, the man who walked on the earth and healed people, that John reclined at his side, who was killed on the cross and came from the dead, was God. That gives me a little tingle in my spine. I hope it does for you. Jesus is the Christ. He's also Lord. He's the Kurios. If you go in the first century into the Greek or the Roman world and you call Jesus Kurios, you are asking to die. The word Kurios was used often of the gods. You would say, Lord Isis, Lord Osiris, that it's, it's a title of authority given to gods. It means uh, applied to someone that they are a deity who can answer prayer and deserves thanks for dis- divine help. And so the Caesars began calling themselves Curios, or in Latin, Dominus. As early as uh, 1 AD, we have a papyrus written recording sacrifices that were offered for Caesar Augustus. And it literally says that these sacrifices are for the God and Lord, Emperor Augustus. That, um, that the emperor was the one who reigned from above and had absolute authority. And uh, the Jews were able to maintain their religion by offering, by being willing to offer sacrifices to Caesar. So to say, to proclaim Jesus as Lord is to say, uh, Caesar's, he's okay. Jesus has more authority, which is the one thing that the Roman Empire would not tolerate. In fact, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, came about because a couple of lowly priests refused to offer sacrifices to Lord God Caesar. And so the city was destroyed. So in context, you can imagine the spine that it takes to say, Jesus is Lord. In Acts 10, Peter is preaching, and he refers to Jesus as Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. That Jesus is Lord over Caesar... And as long as the emperor is content with a subordinate status as merely Lord under Jesus, that's okay for Caesar. But he can keep his lordship status as long as he understands that Jesus is Lord of Lords. Does that bring a little bit deeper meaning into that phrase, Jesus is Lord of Lords? So Lord... Kurios had a specific meaning in the Greek and Roman world. It also actually had a meaning in the Jewish world. That in the Old Testament, God has a name, Hashem, the name. Uh, And 
because of the second commandment to not take the Lord's name in vain, the Jews became afraid to actually say the name lest they maybe incur guilt. And so instead of saying God's name, Yahweh, they began saying Adonai, which is Hebrew for Lord. And so in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, kurios shows up in place of God's name 6,156 times. So to declare Jesus as Lord is to declare Jesus as more powerful and authoritative than Caesar. It's also to declare that he is God. And not any God, but the Lord God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Uh, And so to declare Jesus as Lord is to ask for the Roman authorities to kill you. It's also to ask for the Greek authorities to kill you. Um, the, The Jewish authorities. If we take a look at the name in the Old Testament, Yahweh, it's built on the verb to be. These are, again, all things that are being applied to Jesus. That Yahweh is the covenant name of God and can be translated a number of different ways. It basically means, I am the one who keeps my promises. I am the one who is always faithful. I am the one who is there for my people. I am the one who is here for you. I am your God. Jesus um, applies this to himself in the Gospel of John, when he says, Truly, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. But then we also see the word kurios, Lord, as the sort of cover-up for the name, applied to Jesus a number of times. At Jesus' birth, the angels declare that Christ is Lord. Jesus, um, we saw a couple weeks ago in John chapter 2, when he cleanses the temple, and the, the priests want to know, by what authority are you doing this? He says this cryptic answer will destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He's talking about his body. He's saying, you you are going to kill me and I will be raised from the dead. And that resurrection will show you the kind of authority that I have, the authority of the Lord. On Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, Jesus told his disciples to retrieve a donkey for him and told his disciples when they got the donkey, if anybody asked why they were running away with their donkey, to say, Kurios has need of it. And just before his death in Mark 12, he quotes Psalm 110, which Peter also quotes here in our Acts passage. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. These are all Jesus' claim for himself, the title of Lord and Yahweh. Uh, The disciples in all of the Gospels don't understand this. In um, Matthew at the Transfiguration, Peter calls Jesus Christ. In Mark, no one recognizes Jesus as the Christ until he's on the cross, and then it's one of the thieves. And in John, it's Thomas. That in most cases, it wasn't that Jesus walked with, taught, and preached these disciples for years, and none of them really understood this until the resurrection made it clear that all of the Jesus is Christ and Lord talk came about 
because of the resurrection. So in Acts chapter 2, when Peter says God has made him both Lord and Christ, he doesn't mean like God found a man and sort of made him into Christ. Made means like certified. As a result of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he has now been certified. It has been made clear that he is Christ, the anointed one, and he is Lord over Caesar, and he is the God of the Old Testament. And so the definition of Christianity at that point changes from an ethnic definition of people who are part of Israel, and the community of the church is redefined as those who make this confession. That from Acts 2 on, you know that you're one of God's people, you know that you're a Christian when you say, Jesus is Lord and Christ. That we, in a sense, are defined by our allegiance and are willing to be conflicted with any other allegiances, that this is the one allegiance to the Lord who is Lord of Lords. So let me transition here and ask, why was this the proclamation of the early church? People want to know who Jesus is. Why this? Why Christ and Lord? Why not um, forgiveness of sins? Or God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Though I think both of those things actually are, are part of this. And by the way, forgiveness of sins is an important part of this. If you were here Friday night, I talked a lot about our need for forgiveness and our shame. Uh, and I just want to throw out there that the one thing that I really wanted to say, I neglected to say, the whole conversation about shame and how it's not just that we've made bad choices, but we've become bad, that's true unless you're in Jesus. And because of the forgiveness of sins, shame doesn't apply to you anymore. That now, because of the forgiveness of sins, you might have guilt, you might do bad things but your status has been changed. You're now adopted and that shame no longer applies to you. It can no longer be said of you that you are wrong because you're a son of the king. And that was part of the message, but their message was mostly that Jesus is Lord and Christ. And they called their message good news. Well, what's the good news about Jesus being Lord and Christ? Well, the first thing is that it means that Jesus is present with us now. That even though he is risen into heaven and we don't see him in bodily form anymore, although he still has a body, by the way. I don't know where it is. I don't know how it works. But it's very clear from all the New Testament authors that Jesus had a body. He was raised from the dead. It ascended into heaven. And since that point, he has not ceased to have a physical body. And it's going to come back. But wherever that physical body is, he is reigning from that body over the world that we don't see his reign fully realized, but he is actually, and this is the proclamation of the church, Lord of Lords, that Caesar doesn't have authority unless Jesus decides that he gets it. And that's actually what Caesar says to Pilate before his, or what Jesus says to Pilate before his crucifixion, right? Pilate says, don't you know that I have authority to put you to death? And Jesus' response is, yes, because I gave you that authority. That we are not subject to Caesar or Putin or Obama, but only to the Lord. 
Jesus is Lord of life. And we take this seriously and apply it to our world and church and politics. There's a profound hope to be had here, even in the middle of the darkness, that he is reigning as Lord right now and involved in the particulars of your life. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, not one hair can fall from your head without the will of Lord Jesus. Secondly, the good news is that he's Lord, and that's good news because of who he is. The disciples can proclaim Jesus as Lord is good news because we walked with this man and we know his character. This is the same man who sat down in the synagogue and proclaimed his mission from Luke for Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me to pro- because the Lord has anointed me, Christ, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that this is the one who has ascended as Lord. Not just that he has power, but that he is good. That he has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to bind up the brokenhearted. That's what Jesus saw himself as his mission statement. And so the one who's now ascended as Lord, who governs over the falling of the hairs from your head, is the one who's been anointed by God to provide and protect for the needs of his people, especially the brokenhearted and the poor and the weary. And so in that context, to proclaim that Jesus is Christ and Lord is to know that we finally have the one Lord and ruler that we never dared dream hope that we might have, the best man that ever lived. Finally, the declaration of Jesus as Christ and Lord means that he's ruling now. It means that he's good. And it means that he's not done yet. That he's the one who was and is and is to come, who is dead and now is alive forevermore. And he is coming again. The good news of proclaiming Jesus as Lord is the good news that at some day in the future, paradise is going to come down to the earth. That the new heavens and the new earth we see in Revelation will descend from heaven to earth and God will dwell with his people. And everything sad will come untrue. And the great and beautiful reign of Jesus, Christ and Lord, will begin in its fullness. And there will never again be tears or mourning or weeping. Um, The Jehovah's Witnesses are right about this, by the way. If you ever had them knock on their door, this is their message, right? Not that um, we're going to throw the earth away and uh, maybe be forgiven for our sins and get up to heaven and get out of here. The Jehovah's Witnesses' message is that paradise is coming to the earth. And I think they've in some sense been successful because we've forgotten this part of the message, that the forgiveness of sins is there to enable Jesus as king to redeem us as his people, that he would begin his reign over the world with us as we were in creation, as his princes and princesses ruling over creation.
in the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is a children's story that's really about Jesus as Lord and Christ. Jesus is represented by a lion named Aslan, and he is killed and dies on behalf of his people. And then miraculously rises again from the dead on the third day. And it's because of his resurrection that he's able to remove the shame from the four children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And then what happens then? Everything is put right. The animals made into stone come back into life. And the four children, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, sit on the thrones that he has made for them. That Aslan rules as Lord. It says in the book that he is the king from over the sea and installs Edmund, Susan, Peter, and Lucy in a sense as his under shepherds. And it's his resurrection from the dead that certifies Aslan to have that authority forevermore and gives him the power to redeem his people and place them on thrones. That that is where this is headed, that Jesus as Lord and Christ is on a mission. He has risen, he has begun his reign, and he will redeem his people that we may sit on thrones with him, having received washing from his role as our anointed one and serving under his authority as he restores all things in heaven and earth. Let's pray.